So here is how John Hughes, an advertising agent in Chicago, became the voice of 1980s teenagers. When he was 29 years old, he quit his job and started writing. He wrote 15 screenplays before a single one of them got turned into a film. And he wrote about everything. We're talking a Jaws sequel, a revamp of Huckleberry Finn, an entire script about a guy having a backyard fight with a bumblebee. John Hughes wrote fast. He claimed that he wrote 16 Candles and Weird Science in two days each. He claimed The Breakfast Club took three days. In Ferris Bueller, he worked on that one a while. It took him like a week. And these scripts were good. John Hughes wrote nine hit movies in three years. Seriously, from 1983 to 1986, you could not miss him at the movie theater, whether the marquee read National Lampoon's European Vacation or Pretty in Pink. John Hughes wrote for his stars, like they inspired him. He would hang a picture of Molly Ringwald over his desk and then just get going. He wrote more scripts than could ever get made, including his favorite script, a lost road trip flick he wrote for Molly Ringwald and Matthew Broderick called Oil and Vinegar. Molly was supposed to play this punk rock hitchhiker. Try to picture that. And Matthew Broderick was going to be an engaged traveling salesman who gives her a lift, even though he's on his way to get married. John Hughes loved this script so much he couldn't decide if he just wanted to direct it himself. And as he debated back and forth, Molly Ringwald got busy. And then not long after, John just quit the business as fast as he'd conquered it. So John Hughes's masterpiece never got made. But the script for Oil and Vinegar has to still be out there. And maybe Molly can't do it today, but I can think of one new face. Let me propose it. Emma Stone. Hi, I am Amy Nicholson, Chief Film Critic for MTV News, and welcome to Skillset, the podcast where every guest is an expert, and every week they teach you and me a new way to look at the movies. Today is Skillset salute to John Hughes, the prom king of the high school movie. First up, let's step into the office of school principal Sean Gaillard to talk about that punk Ferris Bueller. Then, let's hand the microphone to guitarist Sam Canariato of the cover band Molly and the Ringwalds to talk about the music that John Hughes turned into eternal hits. And finally, you might have every minute of the 90-minute classic The Breakfast Club memorized, but did you hear the legend that John Hughes made a never-seen version that was two and a half hours long? He cut it down a lot, and Breakfast Club assistant editor Nancy Frazen was there. Let's ask her what we lost. Don't you try and pretend that you're not curious. So let's raise a fist and get marching on this week's episode of Skillset. Imagine what it's like to be Principal Ed Rooney. You wake up in the morning, you put on your gray sports coat, you smooth your red mustache, and you head out to do your job shepherding a high school of teenagers. But one of those kids is a wolf. Ferris Bueller, who convinces his classmates to skip school, and he treats you like an idiot. What does Principal Rooney get for trying to do his job? Shame and humiliation. So what does a real-life principal think when he watches Ferris Bueller? We called up super cool principal Sean Gaillard of John F. Kennedy High School in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, and we asked if he thinks Ferris Bueller is fair. Hey, Amy, how you doing? I almost was tempted to say this is Principal Ed Rooney, but I, <laughs> I held back. This is Sloan's father. 
Sloan's father. Oh boy, here we go. I mean, I assume that you know a lot of principals. I'm talking to you right now while you're at a convention for educators. How would you describe Ed Rooney's principal style? Well, if anything, he, he, he's a great example or a great paradigm of what not to do. He's definitely autocratic. He's definitely you know, someone who, who clearly has uh, no concern for kids. I mean, he's completely... You know, all the things that, that, that we're, you know, we're taught in principal school about being compassionate, putting kids first, serving and supporting kids. He's the opposite. You know, in his area, I noticed last night looking at the film, his Ferris is absolutely brilliant. He is an innovative mind, and he doesn't see that at all. You know, he's done, he's, you know, principal really, he's done all, you know, Ferris has done all these things to get out of school and, and using, you know, like he uses the synthesizer to, to emulate the sounds of hacking and coughing and all. I mean, it, this, this kid's brilliant. And so the fact saying... that Rooney doesn't see that at all as, as an educator and, you know, we're called as leaders to, to put kids first and to see the gifts in others. I mean, he's, he's, he's clearly principal gone wrong. Well, what would you do then if you had a Ferris in your school? Like a guy that your word is going to give good kids bad ideas. Well, you know, as, as a principal... You know, you, as I said earlier, you, you're, you're, part of your job is is to put kids first, but also to build a team. A, a kid like Ferris, I mean, that's the kind of kid. You know, like when I was a high school English teacher, when, when you know, even as a principal, now that's, that's the kind of kid I want. That off, that kind of off the cuff kid who, who has these, and, and necessarily plug them in. It's our job to to harness power for good. And if he had built a culture in his school where, where kids felt invited and, and valued and empowered, we, we wouldn't have the great film that is Ferris Bueller's Day It would be a very boring film. <laughs> I mean, in most high school movies, principals are the bad guys, though. I, I'm curious, do you think that's fair? And do you feel like when students maybe first go to high school and meet you as the principal, they might think you're just the bad guy? Oh, I, I can't stand it. I mean, I, I, you know, my wife is also a teacher. We, you know, we see those kind of educator films and especially high school. We're, we're seen as, as, as characters. I can't, you know, I mean, I, I can't say, I mean, it, I mean, at least teachers have like to serve with love, right? That's Sidney Poitier. You know, who, who, who do I have as a principal? Ed Rooney? Um, and, um, and, uh, and, and, you know, Principal Skinner from, from the Simpsons, you know, I mean, I've got these, you know, and, and then even, and then even if the principal is a good guy or a good person and, and doing right, then, then he seemed kind of goofy, you know, and I, I, I hate to alienate all the Saved by the Bell folks out there, but Principal Belding, I mean, he's, you know, he's just this nice goofy guy. So, so it, it you know, I, we, we don't, we don't have a, um, a dangerous minds, you know, kind of thing. Or, or, you know, maybe the closest estimation is like Morgan, you know, Freeman is Joe Clark and, and, and stand by me. But, but even then there are some things about his style that, that aren't my style and that, that don't fit into reality, even though it's a, it's a fact-based film in some cases. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's tough. And, 
it would be great to see to, to see and have that film. I mean, principles we're just kind of seeing as as a it's a caricature. We don't we don't have the cool um, soundtrack theme song like Dangerous Minds, you know, Eric Gangster's Paradise. And now I'm trying to picture the principal theme song. What what theme song would you even have if you wanted to do like the like pitch me on the awesome principal movie? Well, kind of the first song that kind of comes to mind for me. Pete Townsend, well, actually two two songs. One's a solo Pete Townsend song, Give Blood. And uh, that song is, is all about, you know, I mean, he's got a line in there. I mean, you give blood, but you, you, you give it all, but still they want for more. And I mean, that's, that's a lot a lot of what my job is, is is you give so much. And, and you know, education, you know, that I tell teachers it's a marathon, that, that that finish line keeps getting pulled further and further away from us, whether we're dealing with accountability or, or dealing with the negative portrayal that sometimes folks in society have about educators and principals. So I would say that's, that's kind of a, you know, I'm, I'm a child of the 70s and 80s. And then, you know, The Who, kind of another kind of fight song for me as a principal, I think would be a great song, is Join Together. You know, that song is about building unity and hey let's join together for a cause and that's what the principal is doing is is banding students together teachers together the community together you know parents together families together in service and support of, of kids principal sean this has been so fun i have one last question for you you got it have you smelled a real school bus before <laughs> yes i have this is a true story. You know, I'm not gone looking for Ferris Bueller, nor have I needed needed a way home. But sometimes I've had in my time, I've I've had to um, get on the bus and uh, ride home, and to be that supportive presence for students who might not know how to behave on a bus. And uh, and 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 do I do I hear the the echoes of Yaz in the background? Yes. And and am I waiting for? Somebody to offer me a, a squishy gummy there? Yes. Has it happened? No. So, but yes, I, I have been on, I have been on the bus. That was Principal Sean Gaillard of John F. Kennedy High in Winston Salem, North Carolina. His students are lucky to have him. So, someone talented out there, get cracking on his theme song. Here's the thing about John Hughes movies. You don't just picture them. You hear them. You see Molly Ringwald's face, and suddenly you're humming Simple Minds, or The Psychedelic Furs, or my personal favorite, Spandau Ballet's True. These movies are 30 years old, but the songs still get people dancing today. Sam Canariato knows this must be true. He's the guitarist for the Houston cover band Molly and the Ringwalds. So let's ask him about the power of that John Hughes 80s sound. Set the scene for me, Sam. You're on stage and you play that first chord of Simple Minds, Don't You Forget About Me. What does the crowd do at a Molly and the Ringwald show? They get very excited for that particular song. I think that is one of those songs that really sort of hits a lot of the 80s checkboxes. It's got sort of the sound vaguely British and it, it's got some synthesizers. It's got everything uh, you would want in an 80s song. It's got some, somebody yelling, hey, about Seems like that happened a lot in the 80s. 
you can dance a little bit if you want, maybe a little shoulder action, uh, move those shoulders, do the, do the slide across the floor. Or you can do the Mahler Ringwald. You can be putting your fists up to your face and posing. A lot of the times I want to do some of those dances and I just, I can't because I'm too busy playing a guitar. You really, people get excited. I think it transports them back to when they were in high school or because these days, a lot of folks that come to Ringwald shows, they, I mean, some of them were born in the 80s. Some of them were born in the 90s. So you have a real mix of age groups. And uh, it has, it still is, because it's a good song. At its core, it's a great song. I think anybody doing that song is going to sound good because it's such a good song. I mean, anybody, you know, it kind of knows, you only halfway have to know what you're doing to make that song sound good. You, you mentioned that there's a lot of people who come out to see Molly and the Ringwalds who weren't born when Say Pretty in Pink came out, which makes me think there's yeah. more to the love of this type of music than just nostalgia. You know, there's there's something else going on. What is it about that? I can tell you with certainty that it's not just nostalgia. Every year for the past, I don't know, 12 years, it's been a long time. We have played a, a party that they have at Rice University. Uh, it has been, since before we played it, it was an 80s party. I think it might have been like that. In the mid-90s, they sort of started having an 80s party. And it's very strong in their tradition now. And we played it for a very long time. I think we were the first band that played it. And because uh, we were the first 80s band in Houston, to my knowledge. So uh, it was probably the first one that they could, you know, figure out. And that the party has grown with the band over the years. Uh, we, we, uh, we, we love playing. It's one of our favorite, if not our most favorite show of the year. Why? Because it's kids 18 to 22 just going berserk for these 80s songs. I mean, these kids, some of them were born, you know, years and years at this point after the 80s uh, ended. No, 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 never mind started. And they love it. And so, and they know the words to these songs. These songs are these, the 80s has like got a life of its own now. It's a thing. You know what I find so interesting about the way John Hughes used music? Which is, you know, today in movies, I think a thousand movies, literally a thousand movies have used the same white stripe song, Seven Nation Army. They're using hits. But a lot of the songs that John Hughes picked out were bands that weren't popular at the time. You know, Simple Minds wasn't really known in the States. Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark, Who Did If You Leave. These songs weren't hits. He picked songs and he made them hits. I mean, that's powerful. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, well, that's probably a testament to his direction and the actors and all the people that worked on the movie to evoke with their acting a mood that lets you have Judd Nelson throw his arm up in the air and you're not completely cheesed out. Because if done wrong, it's super cheesy. The end of a breakfast club with him just wandering off down into the football field and throwing his arm in the air. It's kind of a cheesy move, but because it alive, because the music is so evocative and because the performances up to that point have been so so strong. You're, you're not, you're right there with Judd Nelson. Like he pulled it off. He got the girl, even though he's poor and he's, he's a rebel and a thug. He managed to, she managed to peel back his layers and find that inner, 
uh, inner guy that just wants to be loved and, and just wants to make a human connection. And even as I'm saying it, it sounds super cheesy, but because I'm not Judd Nelson, I can't do it. But such a great, powerful image. Is there a song in one of John Hughes's movies that you feel like doesn't get its share of attention? In a weird way, I feel like the song Pretty in Pink. So the song existed before the movie. The movie was named for the song. And now, of course, the movie has completely eclipsed the the song in popularity. And so it's it's kind of uh, uh, ironic that, I mean, it's just, it's, well, it's not ironic that the song is good. It's ironic that the movie is so much bigger than the song. The song is an absolutely great song. It, there's a uh, recorded version is, you know, it's, it's a good, good 80s song, but there's a live version that they did that is a little more rocked out. Uh, and that's the version that we do. And people love it. It's great. It's one of those great songs that has a long, we've added a long guitar solo at the end, but still people can dance to it because it's got that nice riff at the beginning and in the middle and the end. Uh, you know, there's sort of, I don't want to say the chorus, but it's sort of the intro and then there's the middle part and at the end it repeats the same uh, that part is just so people love it. And so I think that I mean, while it's a popular song, it's not like a song nobody's ever heard, obviously, it's in a movie, but it's funny how that song could, could now be less well-known than the movie that took its name from the song. Well, Sam, this has been great. Thank you so much. Goodbye to you. That was Sam Canariato, guitarist for the band Molly and the Ringwalds, explaining why we will never forget The Simple Minds. No, 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 no. So you love The Breakfast Club. What if you had more of it to love? That is the legend behind John Hughes's two-and-a-half-hour-long original cut of The Breakfast Club, which wound up losing a full hour in the editing room. That director's cut has never been seen. There is no criterion version of it. But there is a lot of speculation about what was in that lost hour of film. I've heard rumors of everything from a nude swimming pool scene to a whole new character. When John Hughes and his editor Dee Dee Allen passed away, I figured we would never know the truth. But then, I met the wonderful Nancy Frazen, who was the young assistant editor who worked alongside Dee Dee Allen during the making of The Breakfast Club, and she even spent some time hanging out with the cast. What does Nancy know that we don't? Let's ask. So Nancy, John Hughes wanted The Breakfast Club to be two and a half hours long, but the cut they wound up with was just over an hour and a half. What was that process like of getting an hour out of the film, of losing an hour out of the film? Well, some of it were scenes, and sometimes it's just what we call trims, where you're just, you know, taking off a few seconds here and there of beginnings and ends of sequences. Little pauses, character yeah, looks, stuff like that? Yeah, just things, yeah. And also sometimes it's like, well, you don't need that long walk. You know, maybe you need part of the walker none of the walk, you know, that kind of thing, what we call shoe leather. But mostly, like, we we did try to keep all of that in because the movie is actually pretty stationary. And that was one of the things we all talked about is 
how we didn't want it to be, because in a sense, it's almost like a play. And so we wanted to make sure there was some movement in there so it didn't feel static so all the time. So it's not just kids sitting at desks. Right. So whenever we could, we used, you know, uh, and also the way John directed it, we had people get out of their seats and move. And then whenever there was like the scene running down the hall, you know, you really need that because they're sitting at those desks for a lot. That's what the story is, is that they're stuck in detention where nothing happens. So, you know, but as an audience, something has to happen. You can't have nothing happens for an hour and a half. So, because everybody would be bored. So, um, you know, there was definitely, I think during the editing process, that was a conversation that I heard quite a bit and was uh, actually part of, is how to make sure that the film is moving in a, in a film sense, you know. Yeah, because so much of a film comes together in the editing room. Like, what was important to you and to Dee Dee Allen in shaping the story and stuff that you felt like you could not lose? Okay. So um, first of all, Dee Dee Allen, the editor, who is a very, she's passed on, but she's a very, very famous editor with unbelievable credits. And really the reason that I, I wanted to be on the film, it was about working with her. I have to say, I really didn't know what film I was going on. I just got this call, are you available? And I was on a flight the next day. I didn't know the name of the film. I didn't know anything about it. I knew nothing about it. I went to go work with Dee Dee. And when I got there, they immediately took me over to the editing rooms. And um, and by, at that point, it was dailies and I sat in dailies. I came in on the middle of dailies and it was one of the scenes early on in the film where Judd and Emilio are having an argument. And I didn't know the story. I didn't know anything about it. And, but I was watching the dailies and I'm like, this is pretty good. Oh, this is, this is pretty good. And then eventually um, they gave me a script and I went back to my room and I stayed up that night and I read the script and I'm like, oh my God. This is a really, really good script. So you knew right from the start that this might be an important I, movie. I felt it like immediately, immediately. I mean, it was just such a good script. And then watching the footage, I'm like, I got a good feeling about this. What was in that original script that never made it to the film? Well, actually, pretty much everything was shot. For the most part, there were a couple things maybe that weren't shot, but mostly everything was shot. I mean, when you read the shooting script and then you watch the movie, it's pretty close, actually. There was another character in the film, and that character had some other scenes. Who's this? And that character was dropped. It was a younger female teacher, and she had a few scenes and the dynamic was that the um, teacher that was that they that was in charge of all the kids, he kind of had a little lust for her, and so he was watching her through a window in a door or a window. I can't remember now. Um, she was at the pool and the swimming pool at the school, and he was kind of looking her over. And then there's a scene between the two of them, and then there was a scene where she comes in 
to talk to the kids. And those scenes were dropped because actually um, it was a side, 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 side story. And it really, all it did was kind of take away from the immediacy of the kids and Vernon. You know, there's an editing detail I never caught until recently that I think is so smart, where you have the character of Carl the janitor, and then you really quickly in the film get this close-up of a list of men of the year, and you see young Carl on the wall. And all of a sudden you get this whole story that you, about futures. Yes. And- I wish that actually that would have been a little bit more present. Maybe we'd stayed on it a little bit longer because I think people miss that. Carl was a student really not all that long ago. I mean, it wasn't it was more than five years. But when you see that, it gives you a perspective on what he's saying. Like, I read your, I read your notes. I go through your lockers. I know who you are. That gives you a perspective on how he can say that. It's not just that he's a snoop. It, there's another dimension to it, which is, hey, I was there. I was one of you guys. I know who you are. You know, Not that he was individually John, John Bender or anything, but that he, um, he remembers. He remembers high school. So it would have been nice maybe to either hang on that longer or maybe have him say something that he mentioned that because I think people do miss that. And it's and you're right. That was perceptive of you to catch that. And also I heard that in one of the drafts, Carl the janitor has this part which, which they cut out, which I think is smart. And I can see why, why it was cut out, where he predicts where the kids will be in 30 years. I actually wrote it out. This is, this is what his prediction was, that Bender will have killed himself. Claire will have had two boob jobs and a facelift. Brian will have become very successful but die of a heart attack due to the stress of his high-paying job. Allison will become a great poet but no one will care. And Andrew will marry a gorgeous airline stewardess who will become fat after having kids. Mm-hmm. If That makes the movie so depressing. Exactly. That's exactly true. Thank God that's gone. Yeah. Can, I don't think people would have liked it as much if no, it was in there. No, I, I, I honestly feel, I, I can, I can honestly say that I don't think there was anything cut out that people would have been would have said, "Oh, that's so sad that they cut that out. Why did they do that?" I don't think anybody would say that. I mean, I think there was a good reason for anything that wasn't didn't end up in the final. Is there a detail in the editing that you and Dee Dee put together that you wish audiences would look out for the next time they watch the film? I think it might be interesting if you just follow John Bender all the way through. Because if you just sort of pay extra attention, because I think he was crafted in a way that really makes him work. I know that personally when I was working on the film, I questioned the relationship between Claire and John Bender at the end. Like, he was so horrible to her. Why would she come to him at the end and be attracted to him? And I think we took really care to make, a lot of care to make that work because he does, I mean, he's horrible to her and yet we had to build in some kind of something that would make that work, her being attracted to him. How did you do that? Well, building in extra 
making sure there were plenty of reactions, extra reactions of him to her and her to him. And that's where that's crafting and editing to make sure that you go back, did we build that so that that works at the end? It's like you're you're not shaking your head going, what? Where'd that come from? You know, you don't want that. So I think that would be an interesting thing to watch. And I think actually any of the characters, including Allison, would be interesting just to, if you're going to watch it a bunch of times, it would be interesting just watching, paying attention to eat one character at a time, like a special focus. And you'll see the construction. What do you remember about those young actors watching them do take after take? Um, well, you know, they used to come in the editing room because we were just down the hall. So I do remember Anthony Michael Hall coming in the editing room, um, and he was so adorable. He was like just turning 17, adorable, friendly, sweet as pie. And he had, at the time, a Sony Walkman with headsets. And he would come in, he was listening to Sinatra, which just blew me away, right? And then Jed Nelson, who played uh, John Bender, he used to come in in character. So he would come in with his shoes untied and, you know, in his clothes and he was like, what's happening in here? And, and he'd come in, he'd knock stuff off a shelf and, you know, he just was the whole thing. Now, mind you, I used to like see them at the hotel all the time, you know, all the time. In fact, I used to work out in the gym when I had a night off with Allie and Emilio. And then sometimes Judd would come down. He, d- he wasn't working out because it wasn't in his character. But he would come down and just, you know, beat us up. Um, <laughs> so, no, not really. But um, so, yeah, so I was, you know, kind of friends with him at the time. Um, and uh, so, yeah, it was really fun um, when they would pop in. Because, you know, they'd had to wait for camera setups and light setups and they would have time and they'd wander around into the production office and they'd go hang out in the editing room sometimes. And um, I think, you know, they were on camera a lot. It was probably, I would suspect, kind of grueling for all of them. A lot of waiting time and a lot of on-camera time because the movie was them. Well, Nancy, thank you so much. My pleasure. For telling us about what we, the things we don't know that we don't know about The Breakfast Club. (laughs) It was my pleasure. That was Nancy Frazen, assistant editor of The Breakfast Club and historian of John Hughes's epic vision. I am so glad she could join us for this week's episode of Skillset. And I am so glad you could join us too. I am Amy Nicholson. I am accepting cover songs of Spandau Ballet on Twitter at the Amy Nicholson. Subscribe to Skillset on iTunes or your favorite pod catcher. And if you liked jamming out with us today, give us a rating and tune in again next week for a new batch of experts including our masterclass on high school Shakespeare, which will hopefully give us a new, new way to look at the movies. This episode of Skillset was produced by Michael Catano, Mukta Mohan, Kasia Mihailovic, and James T. Green for the MTV Podcast Network, with additional engineering by Little Everywhere. You can subscribe to this and all of our other shows on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever else you find your favorite podcasts.